Good evening. Uh, my name is Miles McKnight, and I am the president of the Princeton Open Campus Coalition. And on behalf of the POCC, uh, the Princeton Federalist Society and Cliosophic Party, uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event, our panel discussion, Mob Rule, the Illiberal Left's Threat to Campus Discourse. Um, if you would kindly silence your phones, that would be much appreciated. Um, our moderator for tonight's panel is Solveig Gold uh, of Princeton's class of 2017. Uh, Ms. Gold is actually a founder of the Princeton Open Campus Coalition, so we're happy that she's returning. Uh, during her time as an undergraduate here, she amassed an impressive array of accomplishments, including winning the Pine Prize, the highest uh, general distinction conferred by the university upon undergraduates. Ms. Gold is a PhD candidate in classics at the University of Cambridge and is currently a senior research assistant in the James Madison Program for American Ideals and Institutions. Uh, she also serves on the board of Princetonians for Free Speech, and we are very, very excited uh, to hear her provocative and insightful questions. Uh, our first panelist is Peter Bogosian, a philosopher, public intellectual, former professor at Portland State University. Professor Bogosian is famous for his participation in the infamous Grievance Studies Affair, in which he and two colleagues submitted hoax academic uh, papers for peer review in order to highlight the absurdity of the academic standards in the so-called grievance studies disciplines. Among the most famous papers were human reactions to rape culture and queer performativity at urban dog parks in Portland, Oregon, and the conceptual penis as a social construct, which argued that penises are products of the human mind and moreover are responsible for climate change. <laughs> Professor Bogosian resigned from Portland State in September of last year after being subjected to a series of pretextual investigations inspired by the ire of those who took issue with his provocative scholarly projects and pedagogy. Since leaving Portland State, he has taken uh, to the life of a public intellectual appearing on just about every show and podcast you can name as a warrior for intellectual freedom, viewpoint diversity, and free speech. Our second panelist, Ilya Shapiro, is a member of Princeton's class of 1999. He is a renowned constitutional scholar and was formerly the vice president of the Libertarian Cato Institute. He is the author of a 2020 book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Professor Shapiro was recently appointed director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. In February, he joined the tragic rank of, rank of scholars who have been subjected to the Academy's bureaucratic assault on academic freedom for expressing an unorthodox view on President Biden's decision to limit the scope of his search for a Supreme Court nominee to persons of just one race and one sex. Professor Shapiro's legal acumen, constitutional expertise, and fresh and unfortunately ongoing encounter with the liberal left make his voice a particularly valuable one on this panel. Finally, we have attorney Samantha Harris, also of Princeton's class of 1999. Uh, Attorney Harris is perhaps uh, is the. A mini <laughs> um, she's perhaps the academic free, uh, academic freedom lawyer of our generation, or so I've been told, and I believe it. After graduating from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and clerking for a federal judge uh, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, she joined the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, where she spent 15 years advocating for the academic rights of students and faculty at universities nationwide. After leaving the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, she started her own firm, Alan Harris, where she takes on some of the toughest academic freedom cases uh, from around the country. 
Her writing uh, on issues of academic and expressive freedom have been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Daily News, Insider, Higher Ed, Reason, National Review, Poulette, and many other publications. She's appeared as well on ESPN, Fox News, CNN, and NPR as a commentator. Uh, we are very, very honored to have her uh, join us for this evening. Um, and with that, no, without further ado, please join me in offering a warm round of applause to welcome our panelists and to get the show started. Thank you, Miles. Uh, it's great to be here. Let's jump right into the questions. So uh, as we just heard, two of you on this stage here um, have been the victims of the liberal mob that is the focus of our discussion this evening. You are, we might say, canceled academics. But some would look at the platform you've been given today at Princeton and say, hey, what's the big deal? You're not canceled. You're speaking at the top-ranked university in the country. What would you, all three of you, say to these people? What exactly is the problem we're here to diagnose? I'll start with Smith. Thank you. Um, so first of all, I think it is important to know when we are talking about this idea of cancel culture that most people are not Peter and Ilya, right? I mean, most people are not public intellectuals with tens of thousands of followers on Twitter and, a, you know, an army of well-connected friends and attorneys who can, you know, help guarantee that they continue to have a platform and more importantly, continue to be able to support themselves. Um, in fact, you know, I, I will leave it to them to, to confirm or deny this, but I would venture to guess that Peter and Ilya would not describe themselves as canceled. Um, you know, the people I represent are very different often. I mean, you know, I have clients, academics, who have lost their homes, who've lost their ability to support themselves. And, you know, it's not, the, the problem is not people who are already extremely high profile and have a platform and say something that angers people and you know get canceled from a university. Um, the problem is the people who don't have that kind of power to begin with and can't afford, you know, either face this sort of total career destruction if they do speak out or simply can't or won't speak out because of it. The other thing I want to just quickly add is, you know, I would ask who are sort of the victims of cancel culture, right? Clearly we're not going to say that Peter and Ilya are victims, but what about the students who are not going to get to hear their points of view because they have been deemed too controversial to speak or teach at institutions of higher education. And I think, you know, one of the problems with uh, kind of the lack of diversity of thought that we see in a lot of institutions of higher education is that in order to really sharpen your own arguments and to learn what you think and don't think, you need to be exposed to a wide range of views. So this idea, I don't particularly like the term cancel culture, but this, you know, this phenomenon that we are all familiar with um, is really impoverishing the, the nature of discourse at our universities. And I think, you know, irrespective of setting aside the issue of whether the people who themselves find themselves, you know, quote unquote canceled are victims, we need to look at its impact on discourse more broadly. Yeah, um, I don't know whether I've been canceled yet. I mean, the, the term is kind of inapt, but I'm, I'm in purgatory. And that kind of, <laughs> I find myself in an odd situation where, you know, I'm a pretty outspoken guy coming back to my Princeton days and even my high school days, never shied away from expressing my opinions. 
occasionally being provocative, um, sincere, but, but provocative at times. And um, with the, my tweeted issue, I wrote about it in, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. You can all tell, you know, all the saga sort of detail there. Um, you know, I can't go into anything about the investigation, which is ongoing. I'm still on paid leave pending investigation into whether my tweet violated university policies. Um, and, and, and who knows? Uh, but Samantha is right that um, I already had a public profile and platform and uh, powerful uh, people supporting me and kind of the, the, uh, the, 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 the re, um, the pushback uh, on the attacks in those initial days. And let me tell you, those first few days uh, when my tweet scandal broke in, at the end of January were the worst days of my life, second worst. Um, uh, uh, it was an uncertain period where I could have been, you know, without employment. Uh, it was, it happened to be, it wasn't just, it would have been played out differently if I'd just been at Cato and had the tweet and, and there'd be controversy, but that would have been uh, differently. But I was changing jobs. You're at your most vulnerable professionally when you're changing jobs. I was about to start my new job at Georgetown and, and, and this happened. And, you know, I, I definitely regret doom scrolling and tweeting late at night before going to bed. Don't do that. Just put in a thing on, and I wish Twitter would just, if not just went away, but just at least put in some sort of mechanism like that. But um, uh, 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 look, the, the point is my career, my life has gone in a very different direction. Uh, I think I'll be okay, ultimately. Uh, it's not worth what, especially my family went through like the first week or so, but um, you know, at the end of this, uh, uh, I have, platform, have people who want, it, want me to talk that will publish me um, because I've built up a career and have been a, a high profile person in, in various ways. Um, but uh, what this episode has shown me is that there is no room, no margin for making a simple mistake in, in phrasing. Uh, it's clearly, um, uh, you know, the, the Overton window, the, 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 the space for what's politically correct discourse in academia is very narrow, let alone on Twitter. I mean, I, I didn't really care that much about the Twitter mob. That's uh, to be clear, you know, people attack me on Twitter, that doesn't bother me that much, but it's with your career and trying to change from my think tank life to building this new center in academia, center on the constitution at Georgetown that I was very much looking forward to, still hoping uh, 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 to do, but this sort of um, political correctness on steroids, the shaming, um, you know, shutting down events, that's kind of a knock-on effect that happened to me at, at, at Hastings, and who knows where, where that goes with other events, you know, spreading in law schools, alone on, on, on college campuses. This is just, you know, forget my little thing, or even my, you know, personal life, but we as a nation just cannot discuss issues of controversy at all anymore, and, you know, there's no adults in the room saying, okay, um, this has gone too far, um, should be able to debate what our policy on affirmative action is or the proper way of handling um, uh, uh, tax policy or Supreme Court nominations without labeling every op opponent as misogynist and racist and transphobic and, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, we're just at a very unhealthy state in our public discourse. And it's much worse on college campuses, to be clear. That's why this event is about the, the campus discourse but it's obvious that this is spreading through society and this is not a healthy development 
Um, and I've said this, I've tweeted this initially, you know, Whoopi Goldberg had her thing. I'm willing to go on, I don't know, Joe Rogan's podcast with Whoopi to debate things. Uh, I'm willing to do, you know, if the, the, the Dean of Georgetown wants, wants, you know, me and him to go on a, a whole tour of uh, every network and, and things like that, and we'll, you know, whatever it would take. But, you know, we have to be able to, you know, the, discuss issues with which we disagree and accept that some, sometimes people screwed up. I screwed up with my tweet, okay? I used poor phrasing. I was upset because I find racial discrimination highly upsetting, and that's what Joe Biden was engaging in. And, um, you know, I should have phrased it differently. Lots of people have. 76% of Americans, according to an ABC News poll, agreed with my underlying point, but that was deemed unacceptable. Um, and Well, anyway, I'm in purgatory. We'll see where that ends up. But the, the overall issue is Samantha's clients, right? People donate 20 bucks to some cause that's deemed unacceptable and lose their jobs or, or other circumstances like that in academia and beyond. Here we're focusing on academia, of course, but yeah, there's lots of professors, you think professor esteem, privilege, what have you. A lot of professors uh, are, 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 are not. Uh, and I, you know, I'm fortunate to get to have gotten the support, uh, moral and, and otherwise, that I have. Uh, but most people are not there, and and you know, we need to change it. Peter. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks to everybody for giving the security guards a very chilled evening this evening. Peter, can you? Yeah. Can everybody hear me? So I don't view myself as a victim. I knew exactly what I was doing and I, will do it, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, the, the, the question is an interesting one because you're right. A lot of people don't have the platform that I have. And I hear from colleagues and I hear from people who are afraid, afraid to speak openly and honestly about their problems. And the first step to solving any problem is to be honest about it. And I think we have a crisis of honesty and sincerity. So I'm past the point of concern and I'm into the realm of worry. So I'm, just as briefly, so I'm, I'm gonna go on in April, I'm gonna do a reverse Q&A tour of various universities uh, affected by critical social justice ideology, colloquially named as wokeism. And Yale was one institution where I was supposed to be, but I was told that the values of Yale, so, so basically this is in a reverse Q&A, it's not like I stand up and lecture to the students, is I'm in the audience and I listen to the students' experiences of social justice. But I was told by the student organizers that the Yale folks would have none of it because it doesn't think about this. It doesn't comport with their values. Like a listening tour does not comport with their values. So it's something to think about. But when I look here and I see that everybody is listening attentively and I see that everybody's calm, cool, and collected, I'm, I feel incredibly grateful. And it's, a, it's a, really a sense of hope. The larger point, though, is it's not about me. And I think I'd like to echo Samantha's point. It's about all those people who don't have platforms or all those people who are too afraid to say anything because they'll get their time stolen by the diversity board or what have you. Thank you. Okay, so let's play devil's advocate for a minute. What is the best argument you can give me against free speech on campus? What is the best argument in favor of deplatforming people like us? Um, and this time, let's start with Ilya. This shows you that we didn't 
plan all, all of this uh, out. <laughs> um, you know, as a lawyer, you're trained to find the strongest argument for the other side. Um, I don't think the strongest argument is something like, um, you know, you're harmed or um, triggered or something to use your offensive speech. So the strongest argument is, aren't we just arguing about where to draw the line, right? It's not an absolute thing, right? If there were actual Nazis, there were actual, you know, Bull Connor and, and his uh, 1950s era Alabama uh, state segregation regime, right? Would you platform those people uh, in today's days and age? Day and age, that 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 seems like a, that seems like a bad idea. I'm not sure that invite would come though, you know. So it's. It's kind of hard to argue the counterfactual. Who would want to hear from, you know, unfortunately, maybe some people would want to hear from like Joseph Stalin because the extreme left is much more welcome than the extreme right, uh, although they do the same thing. Um, so, so is it just about a line drawing issue? I think there's, I think there's some of that. Um, and aren't we arguing about whether, you know, someone's views are within the proper Overton window? But the point is, um, there's, a, there's a different question I think you ask about should someone be invited versus should someone be deplatformed or shut down? And so if the invitation comes, um, that's a reflection on the organization circle that made the invite. Uh, and um, you, know, you, should, you should make judgments based on that, sure, make arguments based on that, but that's a different sort of decision than whether, you know, when someone has been duly invited, what you do with that. Um, and I, anyway, that's as far as I can make. Peter, yeah. do you want to jump in? Yeah, I'll jump in. I think this, first of all, I think it's too bad that I have to make the strongest argument against free speech as opposed to having people actually believe the argument making it. But that's part of the problem is that there's a linguistic infrastructure within the ideology that buttresses itself and, and protects it. I would think that the strongest argument, thinking about, about uh, John Stuart Mill, you should have someone who actually believes it. I don't believe this, but this is what I think the strongest argument is, um, is that there's something, there's an assumption in free speech, and that assumption is that the best argument will win as opposed to someone who's the most persuasive. And so I'm thinking about you know, the Tall Trees radio show in Rwanda that led to the, the deaths of a tremendous number of people. I'm thinking about Ajahn Chowdhury's, what he's, how he's radicalized young men in particular to go to ISIS. I'm thinking that the, the rhetorical flair in language could be particularly persuasive, much, much more so than a good argument. Uh, I, I don't, I'm going to hold off on my um, defense or criticism of those criticisms, but I think that if you want a little, a wonderful little book, my friend Andrew Doyle, Tatiana McGrath has a wonderful little book on free speech that highlights these, these basic arguments that, but again, the, the, the thrust of this is that truth will prevail in the end. And it could just be that the best rhetoric prevails in the end and we need to curtail speech as that will stop actual violence. That is what I think they would argue would be the best argument for free speech. But again, I think you should ask someone who doesn't believe it as opposed to asking me. Thank you for your beautiful rhetoric, Samantha. <laughs> so um, I, I do agree with what, what Peter is saying. And I, I was having this conversation actually with my, my law partner, who's a former historian. Um, and he, he made sort of, because I was curious, what, you know, I, I, I think 
didn't know that this question was coming. I was um, on the planning call. I heard. So anyway. threw it out there. <laughs> I knew this question was coming, and I had my thoughts, but you know, I was curious to get a historian's perspective too. And and he said something that kind of ties in with what you said, which is that you know we we are used to and privileged to live in a society that you know at least until recently has you know the social order is quite strong, but that in you know weak or failed states, the ability to you know, to recruit people to subversive causes can have like very real and deadly consequences. So I think that I thought was an interesting argument and that sort of goes with what you're, you know, goes along a little bit with what you're saying. But when I was thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, American society and campus specifically, you know, in the broader society, I would say, you know, one of the arguments would be right that, that you know, actual misinformation is dangerous. So that it's, if somebody's allowed to get up and say, you know, that ivermectin and zinc are more effective at treating COVID than the vaccine, and, and people actually die as a result of that, that, you know, that actually has caused tangible harm. Um, you know, I think also when Ilya kind of hinted at this, there would be the argument that, that there are some things that are simply beyond the pale in a civilized society that we should not be able to, to talk about, whether the Holocaust happened, whether slavery is a, is a good thing, right? I mean, I think you know, as Ilya pointed out, and, you know, we're here not, not to make the counterarguments because you all know we probably believe in counterarguments, but, you know, where do you draw that line? And that, that is an argument that is now being used to shut down speech that I think most people would agree is, is within or should be within the realm of can the I, discussion. Can I push back on that? Yes. Please. Are you finished? Are you no, finished? Wasn't quite okay, finished. go ahead. Yeah. One more interesting point related specifically to campus would be the argument that, you know, especially for faculty, you know, the fact that you have the right to say something from the First Amendment perspective, hateful about a group of people, doesn't give you the right to teach that group of people. You know, this was something actually a high schooler said to me, I was talking about a case I had um, <clears throat> with a faculty member who had made a controversial speech that went viral essentially about, um, you know, advocating for traditional gender roles and saying we should be recruiting more men into into particular professions and not women and things like that. And, and the kid I was talking to said, well, okay, you know, I get that he has the right to say that, but why should he be able to teach women if he doesn't think that they should be, you know, going into these professions? And I said, you know, that's a good, it's an interesting, you know, perspective. And I, I appreciated the pushback. And so I would say that with regard to campus specifically, that sort of distinction between, okay, yes, you have the right to say it, but, you know, if, if what you're saying is sort of devalues a particular should you then be permitted to teach that group of people? Obviously, these are not arguments I personally agree with, sure, but these are arguments that I think are some of the most compelling, probably. Yeah, Peter, jump in. Yeah, I have to. I have to respectfully disagree with that. So, for example, the. To you, to, well, no, no, I, <laughs> yes. no, no. I'm, I'm saying for so. So my threshold is is very very different than that. So David Irving, for example, is a Holocaust denier, and. Um, among the arguments that he makes is that, I think it was Treblinka, that the locks on Treblinka, the, the um, concentration camp, anybody could just open the door. So my friend, Michael Shermer, actually flew there and he, he uh, looked at all of uh, Irving's and others Holocaust denial arguments and he investigated it and he published it in Skeptic Magazine. And now we know. So if anybody wants to deny the Holocaust, like. We know, like, we know that those arguments are now out there. So similarly, I don't think, so, so I personally believe that the moral arc bends towards justice. And I, I think that many of the 
and I could be wrong about this, but I think that many of the people who oppose free speech don't believe that, that moral truths can be rationally derived. And so not only think do I, I'm actually positive that they can be, we have a, a, an intellectual history that's replete, replete with doing so and being wrong. And we know the reason we know they're wrong is that you corrected, like you can think of John Rawls. And so when, when you say something that's beyond the pale, like we should you know, re-enslave I don't know, so somebody or some nice person gave me some, I'm, I'm Armenian, they gave me some Armenian desserts, you know, we should have another Armenian Holocaust or something, something just completely beyond the pale. The only way that you can significantly and substantively address those arguments is by addressing those arguments. You can't just accept by fiat that the other person is going to believe what you believe. You have to have reasoned discourse in which you lay out the arguments for that. Because if you don't, it doesn't go away. It just festers. So my threshold is significantly lower. However, now that I've said that, I will give you an example of something where my free speech absolutism ends. And here's the example that I came up with. Let's say that, that there's a, a, a Princeton a chemistry student and he figures out some way to make something that's as lethal as mustard gas, very cheap, maybe like two or $3. And he wants to go on tour. <laughs> he wants to go on tour and see, you know, ordinary household items can kill tens of thousands of people. I think that would be, you, you mentioned threshold. I think that might be my threshold, but certainly not denialism or moral arguments. I don't, I think maybe we think in the short term that, that, that those are good, but in the long term, I think that the best way to deal with those is to subsequently engage them and not shy away from them. You should never be afraid. You should never cower in the defense of reason. You should never be, be overtaken by what you think is an argument because you can't marshal the resources to deal with it. No, you should engage it. You should learn about it. You should read it. You should figure it out. And if you were wrong about that, then you should change your mind. But the way to deal with that isn't by ignoring it. It's not going to go away. Peter, in the, in the case of the guy going on tour teaching people how to make mustard gas, would it be that um, the guy is teaching people how to do something that would kill other people or would physical harm enough, be enough of a threshold? Well, again, for me, for my, my threshold, I'm, I'm picking up your point. My, my threshold would be if there's something that's instantly deadly, anybody could access cheap. Uh, and, and once that idea is out there, we, we could see the deaths of untold numbers of people. So I'm not a free speech absolute. I'm pretty close to it, but that would be, that would be my threshold. Death, got it. <laughs> not just death, but like mass, mass death. Mass death. Okay. <laughs> All right, thank you. Um, so you have just now, Peter, given us uh, the flip side of this argument, and Samantha, you've touched on this as well, why, why free speech does matter on campus. Um, but I think it would be helpful for us to distinguish uh, between academic freedom and free speech. Um, so can you, can you make a distinction for us and can you tell us uh, what do academic freedom and free speech each contribute to campus life? Um, let's begin this time with Peter. I will defer to the lawyers on that question. Okay, let's begin with uh, Samantha. No! <laughs> Okay, let's begin with Ilya. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, um, there's a difference between freedom of speech kind of in the public square, like in the in a public park, 
right? Everybody is supposed to have equal access to that. Someone's shouting about their own thing. Someone else comes up and shouts about something else. That's a different scenario than um, a public school, which is a different scenario than a public university, which is a different scenario than a private university, a different scenario than a, a private business. So the, the type of forum isn't just legalistic nitpicking, but it matters based on whose rights are being enforced and where you're practicing your freedoms and all of these sorts of things. So if I, if I run a business, um, it's not denying anyone their constitutional rights to say, no, you can't come into my business and start shouting your opinions about Donald Trump and Joe Biden or whatever else, because, or for that matter, you can't bring your gun into my business, you can't, you know, whatever it is, I'm, you know, these are my property rights. A similar university can set whatever policies it wants. Now, it's a different issue if a private university like Princeton or like Georgetown, you know, has set certain policies, then certain, there's certain legal claims to come in and, and all that. Uh, or if a public university or any university, you know, sets policies for who reserves a room and, you know, what are the, uh, what, what you can do there, what the significance of that is, um, that sort of, you know, gives you an inkling of the, the issues that come up with free speech uh, on campus and off. For academic freedom, the importance of academic freedom is that so we can advance human knowledge, um, right? That's the purpose of universities, to learn more, to discover more, to, you know, progress as a, as a species, as humanity, right? Uh, Princeton in the service of humanity, right? Uh, and if you're shutting that down, or people have to feel they have to self-censor, as uh, a lot of people do, especially in academic environments. That is not good to the very fundamental uh, academic mission uh, that, you know, even apart from you know, debating national public policy. Can I jump up something, please? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, academic freedom is in some ways a an exception to the general rule that one has very limited free speech rights at work, right? Even, even the government as an employer has a much greater right to restrict the free speech rights of its employees in the workplace. So generally speaking, the, the distinction is, you know, if you're employed by, if, you, if you're employed by a private employer, they can basically, fight, you know, and you tweet something they don't like, they can fire you unless, as Ilya said, they have policies that say we value our employees' right to free speech. Then it becomes a contract law. Then it becomes a contract law, right. If you work for the government, you have free speech rights as a uh, private citizen speaking on matters of public concern. So if you are employed by a public university and you tweet something from your private account about a political issue, your university can't fire you for it legally. Now, they often try, and I have cases like this, but legally speaking, they can't do that. Academic freedom is sort of an, you know, an exception to this general rule about how little free speech rights you have at work, but it's still in legally murky territory. So at private universities, it's contractual, and most private and public universities have adopted um, principles set forth by the AAUP, promising faculty academic freedom. Um, but the courts are a little bit split on whether a professor teaching in the classroom um, has free speech rights akin to someone speaking in their capacity as a you know, private citizen on matters of public concern, or whether um, that can be more restricted akin to the way a public employer can restrict employee rights more generally. There are actually, I mean, I'm not going to get too far into the legal weeds, though I'm happy to you know, talk more about it with people who are interested in this specific issue. But there are actually, you know, there's a split among the courts because the Supreme Court kind of explicitly left the question open 
about the degree to which there is kind of an academic freedom exception um, to this sort of general uh, right of government employers to limit the speech of their employees. So. Uh, Smith, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. So, Illy is a case where uh, his tweet also had to do with his academic freedom, right? Well, actually, there's a further wrinkle in that I tweeted before I was formally an employee of Georgetown as well. Sure, so. that's of course true. But in general, it has to do with your academic research on the Constitution, Supreme Court, et cetera. Um, there are other cases where a professor weighs in on an issue, uh, let's say on Twitter, in an article, that uh, doesn't have to do with his or her but I can answer this because yeah. I just got a new case like this, which I can't, I can't talk about. But it is the fact that you know you, as a speaking as a private citizen, are informed by your workplace, or even talking about maybe a dispute that's happening, a public dispute that's happening in your workplace, doesn't strip you of your right to express yourself. As you know, so for example, if you're a climate researcher and you maintain a personal blog where you write about climate issues, um, and somebody objects. They can't say, well, no, it's not protected because you weren't really speaking as a public citizen because look, you're a climate researcher. Right. It's more like if you tell off a colleague at a faculty meeting, you can't say, oh, but that was just my free speech rights. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's the real idea behind giving the government the right to restrict the free speech of its employees is that you know, just like any employer, the government has to be able to maintain a productive and functional workplace. Um, so that's really kind of the distinction more than the substance of what's being talked about, other than if it is you know, a matter of public concern. So if you tweet on your personal Twitter account about how your colleague Joe was a jerk and ate the last donut, right, that's not going to be a matter of public concern, even if you were sort of tweeting about it from your personal account. But, you know, if it's, if it's a matter that's a public concern, the fact that it's also a matter of professional expertise for you is not going to strip you of your Do you want to add anything to this? No. Well, there's also a question of whether you're um, uh, doing your job or not. So if you were in a public school, K-12 school, you're hired to be a math teacher, and you insist on half the time uh, teaching the students your views on a particular political issue. Well, you know, it's not a violation of the First Amendment rights for the principal and the administrators to then say, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. You should be teaching them math. Like, oh, but it's my, I'm, not, I'm just speaking. Well, no, you're not doing what you've been hired to do. Great. So, well, all right, so I will say one thing. So the, the whole idea behind tenure is that you give people protection to say what's morally unfashionable. Now, there, there are, this is, this problem is fraught with danger, but academic speech is, is key to being able to push back on orthodoxies that we might think so look, we're all trying to figure this out, right? We're trying to navigate this moral landscape. And we have to have some gadflies, right? We have to have some people who are just questioning and challenging. And we need an institutional and organizational structure to allow that. And when we lose that freedom, we lose something fundamental. We lose our ability to have any kind of a corrective mechanism to try to push us back in place. So I think when it starts affecting universities, and it clearly has, I think that it's way beyond time to, to wake up to that. I have a solution for what can be done, but we'll perhaps talk about that in a few minutes. Great. Um, question for all of you. Uh, do you have any advice for students who wish to push back against campus orthodoxy, but fear for their futures and don't really know how to start? Um, 
would like to take that. Okay, Samantha's taking it. Yes, and it is to just display the moral courage and do it. Because what's really interesting is when people push back against what I call the bullies, right? And, and the bullies, we're talking here about kind of, you know, the illiberal left, but there's an illiberal right too. I know because I, I, I piss off both sides on Twitter, pardon my language, so I know everybody can be horrible. Um, and so- Twitter you know, being the dirty word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> push back, then it, what's amazing is that you know, people are so afraid of the consequences of actually standing up for their rights that they don't realize that that is how to win these battles. I mean, I, I'll share a story, and it's not about a student, but I think it, it's very instructive, and I, I talk about it a lot. So, I mean, you know, we're all aware of how, you know, when a faculty member says something unpopular or, or a student often, you know, the administration of, of this or that university is so quick to just throw them under the bus. Right, and they throw them under the bus because they're terrified of student protests and pushback and bad publicity and, and everything. And it always seems to make it worse, right? I mean, it's when you give in to to, to bullies, it, it's blood in the water. And when you don't, that's when it stops. So you know, I, I don't remember. It may have been 2017 or 2018. My fire colleagues, my my former fire colleagues out there will, will remember this case. Um, Camille Paglia is a professor. Fire is the foundation for individual rights and education, and it's currently my favorite organization in America. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Camille Paglia is a sort of, she's a feminist, but she holds a lot of kind of controversial and unorthodox views on, on gender and, and transgender issues and things like that. And, you know, she's drawn various people's ire over the years, but most recently there were students who were demanding that she be fired from the University of the Arts because of things she had said, and you know, they were protesting and everything. And the president of the University of the Arts, I wish I, if I had known this question was coming, I would have written down some of the quotes, it's just so great. But he basically just said, no. He said, you know, my answer to those who, you know, want to censor someone is that, you know, censorship, especially of the arts, is something that's, you know, happened throughout history and it's wrong and it's, you know, ideas need to be able to flourish. And he said, my answer to those who are, you know, demanding her firing is, you know, not now, not at you arts. And guess what happened? Nothing. There were no more protests. There were no more, you know, it died down because somebody stood up. And so I think the, the simplest thing that people can do is just stand up. Um, and, you know, of course, it's very, I, I realize like that's, it's simple, but it's also a really big ask because right now there is personal risk involved in standing up. You know, the thing is that I, I truly believe from the people I talk to, that there is a silent majority of people who, whatever their political inclinations are, believe in open discourse and don't believe that people should be put out of their jobs and their homes for expressing an unpopular view. The, the problem is, especially for junior, for students who are, who are trying to launch a career or for untenured faculty or you know, people with a family to support, it's a lot to ask. So the key is you got to stand up for other people too, right? When it happens to other people, even if they're not people you agree with, you got to stand up for them and hey, say, hey, look, I don't necessarily agree with what this person is saying, but what's happening here is wrong. Um, because there really is safety in numbers. And I think that the, the majority of people, the overwhelming majority of people, I think, are not illiberal um, and, and need to speak out. So that's my advice. Not that the majority of people are or need to be free speech warriors, right? You know, most people are just, you know, at Princeton, where obviously you're in a great place, you're the, you know, 
best damn place of all and all that. And your career prospects are wonderful. And, you know, 44% of you will be consultants and <laughs> bankers and the rest of you will be other doctors or lawyers, right? That's our entrepreneurs now. These, these days you do that and design apps or whatever. Um, but um, that's right. That's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, but uh, the point is, you know, most people are neither like left-wing woke, woke activists, nor like budding public intellectuals wanting to like write off beds and, and, and go to think tanks and stuff like that. Most people just, you know, want to get on with their lives and leave, you know, good lives. But that's, um, you know, that's where the threat can come because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a radical minority that threatens uh, the, the lives and livelihoods of of the majority of kind of the, the, the mainstream of, of folks, even if college campuses and especially elite college campuses are way more to the left on average than, you know, America in general, it doesn't matter still that what I, what I just said, I think applies. So just, you know, have courage, uh, not outnumbered for, for being sensible. Now, I, I have advice to every single person who's an undergraduate in this room. If you think something is true, don't mumble, don't talk baby talk, and don't tone it down. Don't apologize. Tell people exactly what you believe. Don't use big words. Be plain spoken. And if you're worried about people you think are your friends who won't be your friends, they weren't your friends anyway. So Aristotle in the ethics talks about the different types of friendships. And he argues persuasively that the highest form of friendship is between two virtuous people. And if you say what you mean, other people will actually know what you mean. The only way that you can have a genuine friendship with someone is if you say what you mean and they say what you mean. Because if you don't, if you lie, or if you pretend to believe something that you simply don't believe because it's morally fashionable, nobody will get to know you and you'll never get to know anybody else. So those people will never your, were never your friends to begin with. So the Greeks had a word for that parahesia, which is speaking truth in the face of danger. And, and the, the biggest fear that people come across is their social relationships will be damaged. But I can tell you in no uncertain terms, people may disagree with you, but when you're honest and you speak bluntly and clearly and plainly and openly, people will respect you. So in the name of parahesia, um, Before let's... we leave the Greeks, I don't really know the Greeks as much. I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. I didn't know the Russians. That's where, that's where I come from. And Solzhenitsyn said, you know, live not by, by lies. I let evil triumph, but not through me. Uh, and that's ultimately how the Soviet Union fell. You know, enough people uh, said the emperor had no clothes. They knew the emperor had no clothes. The majority, the vast majority knew for a long time. Um, but eventually, you know, cracks emerged and, and the regime fell. And that's, um, I, think, I think that's a lesson. Now, there's a great book I read a while ago by Rod Dreher, a uh, conservative Christian, Live Not by Lies, that I highly recommend. Okay. In the name of Parisia, um, my final question. I endorse Solzhenitsyn, not necessarily Rod Dreher. <laughs> Don't apologize, okay. <laughs> um, uh, in the name of Parisia, our final question before I turn it over to the Q&A, um, let's practice exercising courage and free speech for a minute. Um, can you tell us, each of, us, each of you, a controversial opinion you hold and defend it for us briefly? Um, let's start with Samantha. Okay. Um, so, a a, a, I preface this by saying 
think that I'm a law dork, so maybe this is not going to sound like a We don't want to hear your views on civil procedures. <laughs> but standing doctrine, not here. I am staunchly pro-choice, but I do not believe that abortion is a constitutional right. Um, because I just, you know, the Constitution is a very narrow document. I do not believe that it was intended to, you know, protect a whole range of rights that it has been now held to protect. I mean, the, the process now, instead of um, instead of amending the Constitution, we read things into the Constitution. You know, we think there's this sense, this false sense, I think, that if a right is sufficiently important, it has to be a constitutional right. Um, you know, I often say that I think today, if you were deciding on the issue of slavery, it would be it would be ended not by constitutional amendment, but by finding it unconstitutional. And you know, the challenge is, I think this is what has led to the ferocious. I mean, the, the Supreme Court was never intended to be an unelected super legislature, and I think the fact that that's what it has become, and that we all know that decisions on some of the most important rights that we hold can turn on literally one person's opinion. Um, has completely distorted our politics and the role of the court. And so I think, you know, even though I very much, I, you know, I have three daughters, I think, you know, personally, the right to an abortion is something that, that's very important. I don't think it's a constitutional right. And I think the fact that it and other rights have been read into the Constitution rather than addressed legislatively or via a constitutional amendment has been tremendously destructive to our politics. So I'm one of three lawyers in the entire country to have filed briefs, both uh, supporting Jim Obergefell in the same-sex marriage uh, litigation, uh, saying that states can't restrict uh, marriage licenses by sexual orientation, and in support of Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, to say that bakers don't have to uh, be forced to bake cakes to celebrate said same-sex uh, marriage. How can that be? This is like holding two, you know, cognitive dissonance, these ideas of pro-gay, anti-gay at the same time. Well, no, it's state action and private action. How the gov the rules for how the government has to treat us are different, both philosophically and under the Constitution, than how private individuals, businesses, organizations uh, have to treat us. This is, again, controversial. I get attacked by one side on the one and the other side on the other, but, you know, this is uh, the way it goes. Thank you, Peter. Uh, so a controversial opinion we hold. Let's show you where to begin with that. Um, I think it's important to put that question into hard mode, if you will. So my response, I, I'm going to talk about something that attacks my own tribe, if you will. So I was heavily in, involved in the atheist movement. My first book was a manual for creating atheists. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm sure. So my controversial opinion is that I had it wrong. And what I had wrong was I had the wrong target. And what matters is not the, you know, who believes the age of the earth or, or, or how old, you know, evolution in classrooms. But what matters is what people think about fundamental values and human decency and the ability to uh, express yourself clearly and honestly public speech, free speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, cognitive liberty, the rights of people to believe what they want to believe. And I think I was 
far too harsh on many people who are religious conservatives. And in this culture war, I've learned a lot. And among the things that, that I've learned, and I'll piggyback this on my, my last answer, when you're speaking honestly and openly, you also have to be willing to change your mind. That's the key to this whole thing. If you're willing to revise your beliefs and change your mind, it puts you on solid footing. It means you have integrity. And so that's my controversial belief. I think that the, I, I think that I, I mistargeted what I thought was the threat. Okay, so let's open the floor to the Q&A. Um, well, okay, just, uh, uh, we're going to have you uh, line up behind the standing mic there, please. Um, and uh, we'd like to get through as many questions as possible. Um, so please keep them short and sweet and make sure you really do ask a question, not a comment. Um, and we especially welcome any questions from people who disagree with. Yeah, dis maybe disagreements first would be great. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask Professor Shapiro, like, can you defend the fact that you apologized? Some people, and I think I would make this argument, uh, would say that granted, even if you grant that you were wrong or that you were an artful in what you tweeted, it was a mistake to cede ground to the illiberal mob who uses that apology as a, they perceive it as a concession that they then use to, you know, cudgel you over the head and you sort of lose the fight. Like, why are we, why are we acquiescing to these people? a great question. So my new good friend, Barry Weiss, again, I have access to <laughs> wrote about this a couple of days after my thing broke and concluded by quoting me as saying, you know, do you regret apologizing? You know, she asked, do you regret apologizing? And I said, you know, sometimes doing the right thing is the, is the right thing to do. Or oftentimes, or always. Um, and, and to be clear, what was I apologizing for, right? It wasn't my underlying sentiment. It wasn't that I expressed my opinion and my disappointment and I upset that Biden was uh, restricting his pool of candidates to one of the highest offices in the land. And I don't like restricting it to any office by race and gender. No, it was that I, I phrased it poorly. I, you know, I, uh, I regret that, I still do. And I apologize for it because people misread it, uh, they, could, they could be offended. Um, now, um, you know, tactically speaking, it depends. There's a different dynamic, some of which I just cannot go into because the investigation at Georgetown is uh, ongoing. But uh, I, you know, don't apologize for something that if, if, if you truly did no wrong. Um, I think I did wrong. I, I phrased things poorly. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm paid to, my, I made my career out of communicating well. And I generally do, both in writing and speaking. And, you know, uh, but in, on this point, uh, I failed. So sorry. Peter Smith, did you disagree with his decision to apologize? I think it's, I think in that case, it's unique, it's personal. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if he had, if he had truly, if he had truly felt sorry and not apologized because he didn't want to appear to be seeing ground, then he would have been letting them dictate the kind of person he is. I mean, I feel very strongly that one should never apologize for the purposes of trying to quell controversy because, as I said, I think it is blood in the water, and I think that's it was probably choice. perceived yeah. as blood in the water. But it was what you felt was a morally right thing to do, and so I don't think that you know we should, we can't let other right. people 
make us less moral because we don't want to so, be perceived as conceding right. So you didn't apologize because you thought that they were going to go away. Right. So that you never apologize for that because we'll actually make it worse. It is. I was thinking the whole thing, blood in the water. That's what it is. It's just blood in the water. The problem is if we have a society where nobody apologizes for things they're genuinely sorry about, then the, the whole this this will be a bloodbath. Like we have to retain the ability to say we're sorry we made a mistake when we were wrong, even though the consequences of that will be a bunch of deranged maniacs mobbing us. There's on a word that has become a major part of my vocabulary that wasn't really wasn't before, and that's grace. And that's you know accepting when you know when people say, oh my bad, you know. And don't just you know shame them over it or take that and then demand more. I had nothing more to give. That the only thing I was sorry for was my inartfulness and my phrase. And, and and with with grace, forgiving someone for making a mistake seems pretty basic. Absent, by the way, in critical social justice ideology, there's no redemption there. Next question. Um, hi, Mr. Shapiro. Um, so in the aftermath of your like tweet controversy. Nate Hockman of National Review did a really fascinating write-up of a town hall that Georgetown University law administrators held um, for law students, you know, and in that the dean of Georgetown Law School said he was appalled at your tweets, which he called racist, said that the First Amendment doesn't apply to us at Georgetown Law. He called law students, he, he called hysterical law students demanding free food and a designated place to cry on campus, very powerful. And he said, we've lost your trust and we're hoping to work to get it back. He said he knows how painful and, you know, and these were like multiple deans, like high level administrators at Georgetown Law School pandering to students with these ridiculous demands. My question for you is, why are you letting them investigate you? Why not resign? Why are you allowed, why are you, like, why do you want to be employed by an institution that's so intellectually bankrupt? And so <laughs> why, there, are, there are plenty of other institutions, I'm sure that would take you, Mr. Shapiro. You know, why, why Georgetown Law? <laughs> why not just resign? Uh... Well, if President Eisgruber is listening and wants to make a counteroffer, <laughs> I can't comment on most of that. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the dean is correct that the First Amendment doesn't technically apply because Georgetown is a private institution, but Georgetown have, does have a policy on free expression, which applies and which adopts the very broad policy that Samantha mentioned with the AEP. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not resigning because that uh, would be giving in to the mob and not standing up for yourself. So um, I, I, I gave up my, my very secure, safe Cato post where I've been almost 15 years to uh, join Georgetown because I, I think I have a lot to offer in, in growing programs, part of which is teaching, but not, not the whole thing, it's not a tenure track position even, but it's to, to build, to make the, the goal is to make this center, the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, into, you know, the, the leading one-stop shop for uh, constitutional interpretation. I think I, I can do that. I want to do that. Um, and, uh, we'll see if I'm allowed to do that. Smith, on the whole, oh, sorry. Even with an administration that doesn't respect you or your viewpoints or your right I to speak out? On <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Samantha, on the whole, do your clients prefer to resign or to fight? Uh, it really depends. I mean, honestly, it, it depends very much on their life circumstances. Are they nearing retirement or support family? Do they have other options? So it's really, it's very, it's very case dependent. And 
one thing, I mean, I will say that one thing that has been a real shift for me as, you know, because I came from fire, like I'm a free speech activist at heart, but when you are an attorney in private practice, your absolute duty is to the best interest of your clients. And so, you know, when a client doesn't want to fight, when a client says, you know what, you can get me a couple of years salary and I can provide for my family, like that's what I want to do, you know, that's what I do. Uh, and that's that's the difference between you know being a free speech activist and being a private practice lawyer who has you know who looks out for the best interests of their clients. Next question, please. Uh, sure, I like to ask the panelists. Um, generally, what do you think like the main causes of disparate impacts between different groups? on various levels of academic and educational achievement, you know, say Jews and Asians uh, have higher levels of um, achievement education than white people and black people have less, you know, do you think it's just all discrimination? Do you think it's cultural? Do you think it's genetics? Like what, what do you think is going on here in general? Just because I think this is like a very important point of dispute between, you know, the, the left and the right. And you saw like the Murray thing, right? Like, so i just want to put that question to you guys. You know, I, maybe so Ilya I know is presumably Russian Jewish. So you know, in the Soviet Union, they have these quotas. And so just, just, just want to ask you guys that question. This is beyond my area of expertise. I'm not that kind of social scientist, if any, but I would say that posing that question would, would get you fired uh, in a lot of places because uh, just two years ago at Georgetown, a couple of adjuncts who were lamenting that their um, uh, black students tend to be in the bottom quartile of their grading, they were lamenting this, they got fired. Sure, I'd like to also clarify, I'm not taking a position on that. I just wanted to know because it's a point of dispute. Um, I, I'm not taking a public position on this question. I will say that my family um, experienced uh, these like Jewish quotas in the Second Polish Republic, uh, you know, back in the 100 years ago. And um, I don't like that the same thing is happening now to Asians in the US and it makes me very upset. Would anyone else like to take this? I'll take that. Why not? I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> For real, I would never have taken that question had I, I been still employed, which tells you something like this. So I will also say this is outside my area, but when you look at the data, the data is very interesting. For um, And this is parsed out by independent sources. One of the things is Jews and A Asians in particular happen to study more than African-Americans. And we know that. And the idea, Candy's idea, Ta-Nehisi Coates' idea, Robin DiAngelo's idea, that any disparity in outcome is due to systemic racism. That's just false. I mean, that's just demonstrably false. We know that. We also know, for example, looking at criminogenic factors, there are three criminogenic factors. Almost anybody can guess the first two. In other words, are predictive of particularly violent crime. But the third one, nobody wants to talk about. So it's male. I'm not a biologist. <laughs> age and the thing that nobody wants to talk about is there's an adult male in the home let me repeat that there's an adult male in the home and we can know we also there are other criminogenic factors so that there are cultural factors involved now the question is are those cultural factors themselves the byproduct of a legacy of racism I think that's a very legitimate question that we should have a, a conversation about. And what's how do we remediate that? Do we remediate that with the dominant moral value right now, which is equity? Um, or do we remediate that with, uh, my, my personal opinion is equality of opportunity. So any answer to that question, I'm not the person to answer that question because again, it is outside my domain of expertise, but that's exactly the kind of thing that we need to have an open and honest conversation about. 
And when we see the holes, we need to click, we need to fix them and we need to plug them. Next question, please. Great. Um, good evening. Thank you all for being with us here today to speak openly. Um, my question is related to uh, specifically student behavior in response to campus speakers. Um, in the instance of Charles Murray's visit to Middlebury College in 2017 um, is obviously an example in which, you know, it student behavior crossed into the bounds of being unproductive and dangerous. Um, but my question is, what's the distinction and where do you draw the line between um, permissible, peaceful student or student group protest um, and, uh, you know, dangerous and unproductive um, impediment to a speaker's ability to speak on campus? Great question. Great question. Well, I think you've actually kind of hit on it when you say impediment to the speaker's ability to speak on campus, right? Because look, protest doesn't have to be completely silent, right? And there are actually, I'm not super familiar with all of the court cases on this, but I mean, there, there are actually cases that, that talk about, you know, some sort of, you know, brief, uh, you know, periodic interruptions, a boo, you know, a heckle, a you suck, you know, those things can be okay and can be protected. It's when a disruption becomes sustained to the point where the speaker, the invited speaker, who people have, and, and that I'm putting up in another point, right? Um, the, you know, the invited speaker who people have come to hear cannot speak, right? That's what, when it becomes a disruption and when the speaker is unable to speak for a sustained period of time, then it becomes impermissible. Now, it also depends on where it is, right? Like if, um, if me and someone who totally disagrees and holds a completely opposite view from me show up in the same public square to speak, we can try to shout each other down, right? Because neither of us were invited there. Neither of us have any more right to be there than the other person speaking. Whereas, you know, when a student group reserves a room, and pays money and invites speakers and people, you know, plan to come and attend and hear the person speak, and then someone else steps in and prevents the person from speaking, then these issues of disruption um, and what's permissible versus impermissible come into play. Does that answer your question? Or? Yes, yeah, thank you. Okay. There's been no personal experience on this stage with uh, <laughs> being shouted down. Would either of you like to weigh in on this? Well, I'll, I'll add another example uh, off campus. I think Samantha uh, uh, answered the on-campus stuff I think well um, but you know the core of First Amendment protection is that the government not censor your views on political issues I think everyone agrees with that is the core First Amendment free speech protection well nevertheless the government can come in and say I can't go to your neighborhood in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. with my bullhorn shout my views on you know Joe Biden Donald Trump Barack Obama and anyone else right why? Is it because of the views? No, it's because I'm disturbing the peace, right? Uh, time, place, manner restrictions, uh, permits to do a parade, permits for other things, perfectly fine. Similarly, at, in the academic context, you have to reserve a room. You have to, you know, there's certain regulations that are fine and are not censorship or, or, or shutting down free speech. And, and similarly, when students come in to that reserved, you know, following regulation process and uh, prevent the event from going on, that is when protest goes into you know, disruption, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so this line is getting longer. Let's uh, keep it moving. Next question, please. Let's see, can we can we just- So our response has to be limited to 280 characters? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you all for your time and for being here. My question is about the limits of speech and academic freedom and the exchange of ideas. 
uh, and hopefully this isn't outside of the purview or the interest of, of the event, but um, we see in a liberalism on the left, I think um, that there are some mirrored Orwellian um, things happening on the right as well. If you look at the cult of Trump and the sort of, I'm thinking of the more like extreme denials of no, that didn't happen or no, this wasn't said when we have actual evidence that it was. And the fracturing of relationships in America, whether it's familial, whether it's uh, societal, um, and uh, Mr. Bergosian, I don't know if it's Mr. or Dr. Bergosian, but um, this is perhaps. Doctor, professor, Peter. Peter is great. Peter. Okay, Peter. Peter. Um, you know, your move from being a professor now to more of a public figure, I think, shows like a, a fracturing of of an ability to or a relationship, if you will. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. But um, would you say that um, the solution really is simply more of an exchange of ideas? Because it seems like. Um, there's something more needed or that that is only perhaps one part of the solution to these issues? So, so I have a rather, uh, this is my other controversial opinion. Um, I, I have a, you only have two? Yeah, I, only two, that's <laughs> only two. I have a rather controversial opinion about this. I believe, to be very blunt with you, the academy is lost. I believe that we've given uh, ideologues job, jobs for life. I believe that there are corrupt bodies of literature and scholarship. Uh, so what I'm trying to do, I'm founding faculty member at the University of Austin. I would like to build new institutions. I would like to build up the University of Austin uh, in, in Austin, Texas. And you know, uh, there's other institutions like Stephen Blackwood's Ralston College, which Jordan Peterson's the chancellor. New institutions are coming online. And I'd like to give young people a choice for what kind of education they want. Jonathan Haidt talks about this. You know, is, what is your telos? Is the telos of the university social justice or is the telos truth? I think the telos for the university should be truth. And I don't really care about offending anybody or anybody's feelings. That's what we need to embody. And so my solution to this is to build new institutions, strong institutions, while remaining, while keeping the existing you know, regulatory apparatus and existing universities, et cetera. So all of the venerable institutions like these, the legacy institutions, and give people a choice. That's what I think the solution is. So it would be just a greater exchange of ideas. Will it? it would, but I don't, so this is, this is, so listen, I, I just got back from two months in Hungary and I spoke all over the country. And one of the most remarkable things to me about that experience I know you don't know me, but I give you my word that what I'm going to tell you is true. I spoke before large audiences, all of country. I did not see a single police officer on camp. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I did not see a single police officer or campus security guard at any of the events. When I do an event in Portland, Christina Hoff Summers or Dave Rubin or Brett Weinstein, whoever I'm doing an event with, there were just a little SWAT team is there with shields. And that's there's something wrong with that. Like there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And so again, the solution to, as I see it is, we need to build something and we need to make it so that people, that if you wanna pressure institutions, the way that you pressure them, well, first of all, stop giving, I don't know, it's probably not the case for Princeton, but stop giving money to your, your alumni because they're not the same places that you went to five years ago. Actually, we spoke about that before. Wait, no. Stop. No, don't give one to your alumni. I'll take your money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
but but I, I think alumni should stop stop giving to the institutions until they can guarantee like the Chicago principles, Chicago statements, guarantee freedom of speech and and academic academic freedom. But I don't want to talk too much because I want to get the the questions. But the key to me, I think, in the way that I'm currently viewing this, given the the existing structure, is we have to build new institutions. I'm not going to take a position on on that, uh, but you mentioned Chicago, and that's what I wanted to say. Most universities still have good policies on paper, on the books, to protect expression and, and discourse and all of that. But very few administrators are willing to enforce them. Chicago does. President Zimmer, now former President Zimmer, did a very good job. I alluded to this in my Wall Street Journal piece. Uh, and so you don't have these flare-ups. Uh, uh, Thank you. Great questions, by the way. So on, on some level, you just answered my question, but I'll ask it anyway, because um, it's personal. So I have a high school senior. Uh, my son is a, he's my third child, but he's the one who's currently 18. And we're looking at colleges and we're sorting out where he should go. We're having a little bit of a disagreement. But anyway, the question is this, is given the ideological conformity that seems geared towards activism as the telos, are our universities conducive to the intellectual and personal formation of mature adults? Basically, I'm talking about your basic university or college. Is it good for him, his maturation intellectually and morally and personally? Will this enhance the experience or will it simply credential him and give him a set of you know, knowledge that will enable him to be employed, but it will not advance him in that direction. Should he actually enter into this world if it doesn't? Yeah, that's my question. That's a very reasonable question, if I may. It's a very reasonable question. And I'll tell you what I told my daughter that would have been utterly, my daughter's 15, utterly, utterly unfathomable that I would have told her this five years ago. I don't think you should go to college. Sam, you have a point. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want to? Any dissenting voices around? <laughs> I, I think about this a lot because yeah, I do have, you know, I have teenagers, um, and I think I still think that probably for a lot of people, college is a good thing. But I think that people should be thinking outside the box more um, <laughs> in terms of, for example, first of all, there are a lot of people who I think should go to trade school. I just, I just shared something on Facebook that a friend of mine who's an electrician shared that was like, let's not stigmatize kids going to trade school rather than to a four-year university. And I think that's absolutely, you know, this idea that the only path to success is through a four-year university degree. I mean, my friend, the electrician, who's a smart guy and started a business and now has employees and everything, is, is doing a lot better financially than, you know, a lot of people who graduated from, like, you know, liberal arts universities with a degree in gender studies. Um, you know, and, and are working as administrative assistants. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying, you know, if people think that a four-year, you know, university degree is the only path to success, I think that that's narrow, a, a narrow view. But also, there are so many options now in terms of community colleges. And look, I draw a distinction between private universities and state schools because at state schools, you have constitutional rights at the end of the day. And they'll still try to violate that. But, you know, I think this idea that the the four-year residential liberal arts campus is the thing that everyone should be striving for is 
is not the case, right? I'm not gonna go so far as to tell my kids not to go to college, but I think, you know, this idea that they have to, I mean, of course, they're already like, oh, mommy, we don't want to do this. You know, I don't think I would get in here today, but, um, you know, I think that we should be encouraging kids to think more expansively about their educational options. That's, I guess. My kids are six and four, and they've expressed the uh, desire to live with us forever. <laughs> I'm not dissuading them of that. I'd encourage you to speak to some of the students in the room here tonight and ask them what they think. Yeah, that's certainly, I'd like to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next question. This is directed towards your counter argument to free speech okay. with uh, so called weapons proliferation. And so I'm neither a chemist nor, sorry, chemist nor historian, but uh, my understanding is that chloramines were used in World War I as a weapon of mass destruction. Now, these are so easy to make that we had to warn people to stop accidentally making them by mixing bleach and ammonia. Now, I don't know exactly what happened, but I suspect if you got a farmer's anhydrous ammonia and mixed it with, say, shock treatment for a pool and a little bit of water, bad things would happen, and I want to be upwind of it. So there are things that are very trivial to make. There's the uh, third hole modification on semi-automatic weapons, for example. Speak up just a little, please. Uh, sorry, I had a bit of a cough this morning. I didn't want to. Uh, things like the third hole modification to turn semi-automatic rifles into fully automatic rifles. These are fairly well-known in certain circles. We can now 3D print guns. I suspect the next 20, 30 years, we can be able to do something similar with uh, microbes. So that said, these are all capable of mass destruction pretty quickly by one or a small group of people. But in the same vein, we see uh, self-professed communists lead on to these massive paths of destruction that kill far more than any one weapon. How do you balance that? Uh, your argument was so persuasive, I've changed my mind. <laughs> well, I'm serious. I've changed my mind. I've lowered my threshold. Uh, I've changed my threshold. And so I'm going to rethink my position. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Next question. Hello. Um, first, I want to start off by thanking all the panelists. It's been a great event uh, thus far, really, really enriching conversation. Um, I want to, uh, first off, and second, I'll agree with uh, what Samantha said about advice towards students about um, like standing up for your beliefs and that being a good like response to the intimidation. When I was a student at Georgetown, I, did, I own fair share of being involved in controversial student, student activities, um, boards or clubs, and the experience of responding to things on social media, responding to people face-to-face -face was very good in terms of character building and getting that confidence to speak out. And it, and I, personal experience, it does help. Um, my question is, what about situations, I guess, in the classroom, right? When it's not about your peers or extracurricular events, those kinds of things, but voicing um, controversial opinions or just opinions that your professor doesn't share, right? Or what are like recourses if you feel that your professor, you know, you write a final paper about some political topic and your professor gives you a very poor grade, you feel that you are persuasive, but the professor didn't agree, you know, those kinds of situations. Um, what advice would you give to uh, students? I mean, that's a tough one. I think, first of all, I will say as someone who gets, you know, a lot of student complaints 
and everything, but I think this happens less frequently than students might hear. My, my sense is, generally speaking, that all the faculty I, I talk to, whether they're on the right or the left, recognize good faith disagreement. I, mean, I, I really can't say I've had students come to me and say, I feel like my professor gave me a poor grade because they disagreed with me. You know, more often, really right now, the balance of power between students and faculty has shifted so dramatically on many campuses that all a student has to do is say that they don't like the way a faculty member you know, covered a particular topic and that faculty member will be under investigation. I think faculty are terrified of their students right now. So I, I don't actually think, I mean, now, I don't want to counteract it, but you've had that experience. Like, it, I'm sure there are appeals processes, you know, ultimately, you know, the department chair and all this stuff, but I'm sure it happens, but I think it happens less than one might fear. Thank you. All right. I, th I think feeling that you have to like self censor in class is much more widespread than mm -hmm. actually getting. Yeah, yeah just as a little way to think about the problem. Just say, oh, I'm curious, you know, how would somebody respond to this? Or what, what do I do if someone says this to me? And then you tell them what you believe. So if you're really like terrified of saying it, you can always form it, phrase it in terms of a question. Uh, hello, thank you all for a great panel. Um, I'm interested in what Peter said regarding- Do you wanna um, tilt the mic down? Yeah. yeah. Uh, regarding uh, moral truths. Um, I think you said that anti, like people who are against freedom of speech generally believe that moral truths cannot be derived. Is that? So I, it's a little, it's a little more complicated than that, but go ahead with the question. Oh, I'm just asking, like, do you think in the past, like a few hundred years or so, people were more encouraged to derive their own moral truths, I guess? How do you think humanity is faring in that aspect? I think the, the way I think the way to derive moral truths, whether individual, okay, this is a huge question. So, <laughs> question. So, here's my quick answer. So, first of all, you have to really, people have done the intellectual history. People have done the intellectual work throughout history for us. One of my favorite thinkers, besides Socrates, my favorite thinker of all time is John Rawls. And we have a history of moral philosophy in which people have wrestled with it. Bentham and Mill recipes, utilitarians. And so we, we can look to see what the mistakes were and what the arguments are. I think that there's a kind of myopia in our current society in which every society thinks, oh, woe is me, it's really bad now. But you don't have to go that far back, even to the Civil War, to see when we really were at, at took up arms against each other. So I hope this answers your, your question. As long as we have a culture or an environment that allows debate, although I'm not a fan of debate, I'm much more of a fan of conversation. Debate, conversation, the free exchange of ideas, and doesn't have some kind of a punitive uh, mechanism, like a punishing mechanism for those who are heterodox voices or reject the orthodoxy. It, it, the, to borrow a turn of phrase from Martin Luther King, the moral arc really will bend toward justice. But the idea is that you can figure out what's true and, and I personally believe that there are such things called moral facts. There are facts about the world. There are moral facts about the world. For example, what's happening in Ukraine, you could go down the list of any one of a number of things. How we figure those out, how we figure those out is through discourse and dialogue 
but we also have to live in a community with each other and we have to make compromises and democracy is messy. So that was a, I shoved a huge answer there and I hope it was sufficient. Uh, thank you, Rawls is also my favorite. <laughs> Great, we have time for one more question. I'm sorry, Edgar, you'll have to- And anybody shelter. can do John Rawls' thought experiment. Uh, I prefer knows it, but you know, <laughs> we have that conversation. Uh, thank you all for the discourse. My question is for Peter. Uh, so during your talk, uh, you spoke about how allowing um, unpopular and historically incorrect thoughts to be spoken makes it easier for them to be discredited. Uh, uh, discredited and challenged, if you will. Uh, I was wondering, how does your approach change when instead of, say, um, discredited and uh, isolated individuals like David Irving, instead of them, you have actual governments and institutions saying things that are historically scientifically untrue. And if I may refer to our uh, common heritage, uh, say in the case of uh, the Armenian genocide, where you have actual states saying that uh, such a thing didn't happen. You have Correct. professors, say at Princeton, just a little while back saying that it did not happen. How does your approach shift? I, 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 don't, I don't think it shifts. And that's the problem. <clears throat> So I've, I've called it, uh, published about this, called it idea laundering. And idea laundering is when people get together. Who's heard that phrase, by the way, idea laundering? Okay, so real, real quick. So the, the, the problem, where's my back? The problem is not necessarily from government, I think. The problem and the uh, tapping into a theme of the panel is where it happens in academia. So let me, let me give you an example. So. So he has some idea, some moral impulse about something, whatever it is. And he knows that I share that moral impulse. And he knows that Samantha shares that moral impulse. And he's in academia. And he says, hey, listen, Pete, let's, let's do this. Let's make a journal. We're gonna make a journal and we're gonna call it the journal. So you have actual, the whole, there are, uh, the corpus of peer reviewed literature is replete with this. Like, let me use an actual example, fact studies. So fat studies isn't about what you think it's about. It's not about A1Cs or carbohydrate ratios, et cetera. It's about pushing it. It's an activist journal, which pushes moral opinions about people who are fat. Okay, so he has an idea about fat studies, fat people. I have an idea about fat. So we, we, we launder it. Just as you do money laundering, you, you do idea laundering. I had uh, all the trappings of the journal. We have reviewers. We have people who he writes, in fact, studies, he writes, he writes, she writes, everybody's, I don't know, everybody's writing for fat studies. Those are reviewed, they go into the literature, they go in as a moral impulse, they come out as knowledge. We then point to that and say, listen, this is how we should form public policies around this. This is why I'm telling you, if you're young and an undergraduate, you have to be particularly skeptical about what you read in undergraduate journals, because these, not by and large, but there are, off, there are many, many examples like the conceptual penis. These are just the musings of ideologues that have been laundered to appear as if they're knowledge. So, right, and your article gets cited as if it's yes, right. So, yeah. you know, the, I think the average paper, or someone looked this up in the humanities, is cited one to, to two times. My, the conceptual penis has been cited, even if you take out the people using it, and the article is retracted. That article is, I'm, I'm constantly tweeting, you know, ever since everyone's talked about Twitter, the conceptual penis thrusts its way into the literature again. <laughs> uh, people are continuing to cite that. It's, and if you, if you, I'm not advocating anybody 
do drugs, but um, <laughs> if you do smoke marijuana, you should totally smoke marijuana and read that. <laughs> um, so so my, my response to, to that is, I don't think so much that the greater danger is from states, but I think it's when you get the imprimatur of knowledge from universities and academic institutions. That problem just parenthetically is made worse because those people then go up for promotion and tenure and get jobs for life because they've laundered a lot of their ideas. Now, when a government does it, it seems for the most part that it's conspicuously ideological. It doesn't have the same dressing as something that it dresses up as knowledge. So I, I personally don't view that as as big of a problem as what I see happening in the academy. That is your question? So uh, we've reached eight o'clock. Um, I want to please join me in thanking uh, our wonderful Thank you. Thanks, everyone.